You are listening to National Security Law Today. The mayor of the District of Columbia is assembling a volunteer medical corps to help combat COVID-19. The USS Comfort, a Navy vessel, is now husbanded in New York. And our neighbors, especially the elderly, need help. We're here today to discuss the report of the bipartisan National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service with Avril Haynes, one of the commissioners, and Paul Lakas, whose name I'm butchering, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> who is the general counsel of the commission. Welcome to National Security Law Today. Our first guest is Avril Haynes, a member of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, former White House Deputy National Security Advisor, former Deputy Director to the CIA, former bookstore owner, and general renaissance woman. Avril is also one of our 19 amazing women in national security law, so please tune into part two to hear more about her bio. Um, but we are very excited to welcome her. And it's right on time in April, uh, because that's when the 19th Amendment was fully enacted, so we're right on target. Avril, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Enjoying the podcast while we're all stuck at home. <laughs> and Paul Lekas, uh, my buddy from DOD, has also decided to join us today kindly. Thank you so much. Paul is the general counsel and chief legal officer for the commission. And prior to that, he was senior lawyer at the Department of Defense handling national security matters, privacy and civil liberties matters, DOD litigation, cybersecurity initiatives, and an array of incredibly important legal and policy matters for national defense. And we were colleagues there. So welcome, Paul. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here today. And welcome, Paul. Welcome, Avril. Um, we hope everyone out there in podcast land is well and happy at home following the CDC guidelines. These are challenging times for America, and we commit to bring you content every week. Yes, thank you for listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will remain here for you during the duration of the crisis with legal updates and podcasts. So timing is everything, and the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service has just dropped its report on how to strengthen all forms of service in the United States. This is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. I was like a Girl Scout when I was a wee little thing. I was in JRRTC and ROTC. Um, and I am still a volunteer at Food and Friends, so I love national um, national service. I'm all about Thank doing you, service. Thank you, awesome. <laughs> and I was also <laughs> in the Air Force, so this was a huge. I was very excited wow. to, um, to have you all come and talk about this extremely important work that the commission did. So, can you, um, Avril, can you uh, kick it off and just tell us what commission we're talking about for those who don't know? Absolutely. So first of all, thanks so much for having us. We really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's nice particularly to be surrounded by people of service. And in essence, the commission is one that was established by Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act, and it's got a mandate to look at really two principal issues, one of which is how can we foster a greater ethos of service in the United States? And the second issue is really to conduct a review of the military selective service process including whether women should be included in the registration requirement. And we're particularly unusual, I think, just to, to note this, um, because we've been asked to look at service areas across the board, so not just military service, but public service and national service. 
And those are actually defined in our statute. And I can give you sort of the, the basic definitions that are there, just so you have a sense of, of what that service might be. It's one is public service, which is basically civilian employment in the federal, state, tribal, or local government in a field in which the nation and the public have critical needs. So this is a um, an area of service that's particularly close to my heart because it includes things like the State Department and the CIA and the National Security Council and places that I've worked in the US government. And then national service is actually civilian participation in any non-governmental capacity, including with private for-profit organizations, nonprofit organizations, including faith-based organizations and so on. And it, you know, many people think of it um, in the context of the Peace Corps or as AmeriCorps or others, but there's really a wide range of, uh, you know, types of service that come under national service. And yet, really, we were asked to look across all of these areas of service and how do we inculcate, in a sense, this ethos of service across these areas, which was really a lot of fun for us because with 11 commissioners coming from very different backgrounds, we got a chance to learn about these different areas and, and really understand better how so many of these areas of service share kind of fundamental characteristics and how useful, in a sense, it is to look at them across the board. But I'll stop there and let Paul, who's really been an amazing part of this and the general counsel for the commission, speak to his piece of this. Yeah, so what, did, what does the general counsel of uh, one of these commissions do? Yeah, so thank you very much. Um, uh, I think that um, Avril gave a wonderful overview of the commission and its background. And um, very briefly, uh, you know, my role as a general counsel, and we have a, you know, full staff supporting the commission on a full-time basis. Um, but as a general counsel, I assisted in getting the commission started up and um, help in uh, guiding the um, deliberations and, and, and implementing the governance structure for, uh, for the commission. Um, we also, on the legal side, do um, legal research, we vet policy options, um, we draft legislation. So it's really, um, there's a whole range of, of, of tasks that we are um, we work on. And the staff more broadly has um, a host of researchers and policy experts and communications experts, um, because the mandate is one that is quite large and touches on um, pretty much every area of American life. Um, so what kinds of legislation would uh, general counsel be looking at for commission? Yeah, no, absolutely. The, so the commission's organic act, um, which was contained in the um, NDAA for um, FY17, directed the commission to develop recommendations and to make legislative proposals. On and, and for all you acronym phobic, that's the National Defense Authorizations Act that yes, funds it is. DOD. Sorry about that. <laughs> fiscal year. Um, so the commission was directed to submit legislative proposals. And so one of the decisions that the commission made very early on was that um, they wanted to prepare uh, legislation to accompany any other recommendations that would um, direct Congress to act that would require a change in the law or would require new laws. Um, so ultimately, at the end of this process, the Commission has made 164 recommendations. Um, of those, 85 require some form of legislation. So the Commission put together a comprehensive proposed bill called the Inspired Serve Act. And this contains legislation on 85 of the different recommendations that the Commission has made. Uh, the remainder of the recommendations go towards executive action, or some of them are actually directed at the private sector, states, local governments, and so on. Um, so the legislation itself is a wide range of um, amendments to the Selective Service Act, to the development of new programs and new offices, 
um, to minor changes here and there in order to address certain uh, certain of the recommendations that the commissioners um, the commissioners ultimately identified. Thank you. Um, so as we face this current crisis of the coronavirus, many of us are wondering how we can you know, find opportunities to help our communities in addressing challenges posed by COVID-19. And you all concluded that a service platform would be important to inspire more Americans to serve, to service. Can you tell us what that would be like and why you thought it was important and how it would work uh, in a crisis that, like the one we're facing today? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the major challenges that we identified in sort of, um, inculcating this kind of culture of service and this expectation of service universally was the fact that so many people had a lack of awareness, frankly, of different service opportunities that they could engage in. And, and then we talk about aspiration and also access challenges. But in the context of awareness, just as a basic point, one of the issues you have, and really even I found this to be true for myself, and I don't know if, if all of you had the same uh, experience, but I learned about service opportunities largely from my family. I, I got a little bit from school. I didn't have a lot of awareness of things like the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps and a variety of different service opportunities um, that are out there. And uh, and I didn't know where to really look for those kinds of opportunities if it wasn't something that a teacher or somebody else was telling me about or a family member. And so one of the key things that we've recommended is establishing an internet-based internet service platform really to connect Americans with service opportunities. And this is something where we can imagine essentially that you know Congress would appropriate a multi-year funds for this kind of service platform, and it would be under the supervision of this Council on Military National and Public Service that we've identified as something that we think should be established. And it would allow anybody, it's a kind of a one-stop shopping scenario where anybody could go to that service platform and find out about different opportunities and really sort of in many circumstances have an opportunity to click through, you know, to the different places that have those opportunities. But in a crisis like this, in the context of COVID-19, where really it strikes me that this experience demonstrates the role that service can play. And I should say in particular, I'm really grateful to the public servants and the healthcare workers who currently are just under tremendous pressure, but taking care of the country for all of us right now. This could be a place where you could imagine anybody who is working on this crisis would be able to effectively advertise, we need these kinds of workers and so on. Like, for example, I got, I'm in New York City and I'm under, you know, essentially orders to stay home by the governor and uh, and he texted out, in effect, a call for healthcare workers. Well, one could imagine that being done through a service platform like this. But what would be even more advantageous would be a scenario in which that platform exists generally, right? So it's around before the, the crisis hits and you're able to sign up sometimes for reserve core opportunities like the one that, uh, you know, you identified that the DC mayor is set up and so on. And you're able to basically tell people, I'm interested in this and here are the skill sets that I have. And when you have a crisis, you can reach out to me and I'd be interested in trying to do something. Or you could even take it another step which is done in a number of reserve corps around the country. Colorado's got one of these that relates to health care workers as well, where you have an opportunity to basically have 
just a little bit of training before the crisis. So you have a, an opportunity to understand how, you know, you would um, report for duty, the kinds of activities you'd be engaged in, and be much more effective and be able to hit the ground running in the context of a crisis where those folks are needed for service. So this is a, a sort of a broader idea, but it tells you how critical some of our recommendations could be in the context of a disaster like we're facing right now. It's just stunning. It's so simple it might just work. It's stunning that we don't already have this. The service, yeah. you know, it's really like balkanized, like the service opportunities that are really challenging to find for young people who might have the, um, you know, the where the, the interest in it, but they, they, they don't know how to, how to get it done. Totally. And, and, you know, it's funny because it's, the, this concept of a portal is something that people have thought about before. There was uh, an effort in the Bush administration and in the Obama administration and so on. But what happens is they don't continue through administrations and they haven't been approached from this kind of comprehensive way on service, this sort of one-stop shopping for really everything that we're proposing in this context. So I, I totally agree. It's one of those things where we really got a lot of um, you know, when we went around and we listened to people around the country and talked to them about some of the challenges we we heard how useful something like this could be. Yeah, I I, yeah, I bet I, that's the case. I think um, it, it is an interesting fact. You mentioned young people accessing this. I also noticed in your report the reference to uh, volunteer opportunities for seniors and other people in sort of mid-career. So really, it could be yeah. available to everyone. It sounds like a, a really great idea, and it'd be nice if Congress would bite on this. Um, but let, let's talk for a minute about something critically important, I guess, to the podcast, to uh, the members on the standing committee, but your commission also zeroed in on the importance of civics education. Um, and that's a topic that we've covered in two or three podcasts here on NSLT. But what did the commission see with respect to service and the role of civics education? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, I think I have been convinced through this process that we're really in the midst of a crisis when it comes to civics education in this country. And, you know, we didn't set out to review civics, um, but nearly every conversation or meeting we had around the country included a kind of a passionate call to improve civics education. And one of the, the sort of um, figures that we point to and recognizing it's not always easy to get these things right um, is that the federal government spends only about $5 million annually on dedicated civics education programs while spending, according to a White House report that was recently issued, about $3.2 billion in support of STEM education. And it, it just gives you a sort of a sense of when we're interested, when we invest in an area, you know, that is, those are the kinds of resources we can bring to bear. But on civics education, what's available is just astonishing. And I mean, even just looking at the how much it's declined, you know, it hasn't always been at five million. Uh, annual federal funding for civic education went from 150 million in 2010, for example, to five million today. So, it's um, it is really astonishing how little we have invested in it right now in many respects, and we see a big challenge, right? I and mean, it's 22% of American adults they say cannot name any of the three branches of government. 37% can't name or don't know any of the rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. Less than 25% of eighth graders were rated proficient in the latest national civics assessment. So it's clear that we have a, a challenge in front of us. And we, we talked to a number of states that are trying to invest in this area and really doing some remarkable work and tried to provide some recommendations in that context that would help in that way. And it, it is actually 
it's it, civics education and, and service learning are the only place where we actually specifically identified an amount of money that we thought should be appropriated by Congress. And for the for civics education in particular, we say that we recommend that the Department of Education be provided essentially $200 million annually in seed grants to state and local education agencies and to higher education institutions to promote civics education, apply civics, service learning, et cetera. So it's a, a space that we spent quite a bit of time on, but I just wanted to comment on the connection between civics education and service learning. And I think one of the things that we really found, and this is reflected in our report, is that this relationship is actually critical. And we, we pulled both from conversations that we had, but also research that we've uh, cited to in the report, the relationship, and revealed from our perspective, high quality civics education plays a critical role in actually creating informed and engaged citizens who are more likely to make a positive impact on the nation and their communities by pursuing service throughout their lives. So, you know, one of the, the things that we talk about in the um, report about civics education is we think it's important to start early. It's K through 12. We want to see really everybody exposed um, to civics education. And we see the connection between doing that and actually basically creating this culture of service that ultimately we believe um, then creates this expectation of service for every American across the board. Wow, that's incredible. It is an interesting note that um, civics education has declined that much uh, in established, you know, educational settings, but it is a critical and part of the immigration test that has to be taken and understood by new citizens. Yeah. So uh, obviously we value it that it's given that position in, uh, as part of the, the gate into citizenship. So that's really um, devastating. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you entirely on this. <laughs> And it is, it's really interesting. I mean, this is just anecdotal, but, um, you know, my child is the son of a lawyer and a law student. And, you know, we told him he could have his pick of any museum on the mall to go to. And he wanted to go to the archives to see the Constitution. It really, it, it, which is the nerdiest thing I can think of. But also, I was super proud of him, right? Like, it, yeah. I think that I think that that's absolutely the right approach is getting kids interested in civics early and making sure they understand their relationship as citizens um, to the country and why service is so important. It's, it's, it's also a very simple idea that, you know, I'm glad you, you all spent so much time on um, developing this report, but it definitely justifies the uh, amount of funding you are um, recommending that Congress appropriate. Thank you. Yeah, no, totally agree. And that's wonderful about your son. That's very <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, um, so I also wanted to ask about uh, the part of the report that talks about the civil military divide. Can you talk about what that is and how the recommendations help address that divide? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, civil divide, it's generally a term that's used to describe, as I see it, sort of the increasing divide that you see between the military and American society, which leads to other trends and challenges um, in the context of what's sometimes captured under the civ civilian military divide, which relates to policymaking and the politicization of the military and so on. And it is reflected in you know, some, some figures that we try to highlight in the context of the report when we talk about it, which is you know, despite 
over 20 years of war uh, that the country's been engaged in, right, less than half of 1% served on active duty at any one time during this time. And you also look at the fact that veterans today are twice as likely to have a son or a daughter who have served or is serving in the armed forces and about twice as likely as non-veterans to recommend military service. And, and then we also looked at the sort of uneven representation geographically across the country where 68% of essentially recruits come from the American South and West and 40% come from just five states. And so when you, you look at this, what you see and, and, you know, and we experience it in different places, I think, in our society is this, this divide between those folks who really understand the sort of costs and benefits and, and the sacrifices that are being made in the military and those who, you know, sort of the broader American population. And, and part of what our recommendations try to do is actually to narrow that divide and increase awareness of the importance of military service and also try to promote ways of um, uh, creating sort of greater geographic diversity and other types of diversity within the military itself in the way in which we recruit and so on. So, um, you know, make military installations more accessible to civilians so that, you know, basically you can have more opportunity to see them. Many of the bases were closed after 9-11 other places. That creates some barriers, you know, extend programs that increase engagement in areas with low propensity. So really, invest in recruiting in areas that you don't normally get your sort of military recruitments from so that we can see greater diversity across these areas and do some of those things to really help to strengthen, frankly, um, the relationship between the civilian and the military in these spaces. So you're citing a lot of really exciting and interesting statistics to back up the recommendations. Can you talk a little bit about your methodology? I actually found this to be really interesting. Well, so we had a, a remarkable um, commission staff, and, and Paul should should chime in on this too, since he was leading much of it. And th there was a um, uh, what we would call the the research analysis and writing team, raw team, and they did extraordinary research and work in basically trying to get as much as they could um, in facts and figures and, and, you know, looking at other people's work and so on to back up the kinds of uh, sort of conclusions and findings that we put forward. And in addition, they put together a methodology for how we would incorporate the public input that we were uh, receiving through a whole series of different ways, right? We had um, public meetings, we had foras, we had hearings, we had panelists that would come, we had, um, you know, a whole series of focus groups that we would do. We did a whole series of things, statements on the record, we consulted with organizations, and we got an enormous number of public comments. I think it was over 4,300 or so. And, um, and so what they wanted to do was really sort of develop a methodology through which we could actually understand and interpret some of that information in a way that didn't lead us to get, you know, sort of into classic bias scenarios um, as part of uh, what we put forward. And they reflected, I think, quite remarkably in the report, and they deserve enormous credit for it. So, I, Paul, do you want to add to that? Um, I think that was an excellent overview. I mean, I think it shows that um, there was an effort and and this really was led at the top um, and and by our excellent research staff to uh, to to make sure that the recommendations that ultimately came out um, were based in research and reflected um, various methodologies and sources of information. Um, the 
we were also able to leverage studies that have been conducted by uh, by jammers at the Department of Defense and also the Harvard Institute of Politics, uh, um, which are very helpful in trying to understand uh, public opinion and particularly uh, where younger people are with respect to military service and other types of service. So um, I think in the in the time that was available, it was quite a comprehensive uh, research effort, and we hope that's reflected in the in the report we issued this week. So, Paul, can you tell us what one of those listening sessions was like? So, listening sessions with members of the public. So, the commission held um, different types of listening sessions around the country with uh, small groups, with small groups of young people, small groups of old people, small groups of people who serve, people who don't serve, um, you know, uh, 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 emergency responders. Um, in, I think, Memphis, we had a very good meeting with them and high school students in Denver and um, so the commission really um, sought to develop something of a mosaic of, you know, what does America actually think about these issues? Um, and they visited 42 cities and 22 states in every census region um, during a period of about 12 months. And that's in addition to collecting information in other forms um, and, and held a number of these smaller group meetings and also larger group meetings um, and, and big public meetings that were open to anyone from the public. So I think what that did was um, that piece of the methodology didn't provide a statistically significant um, uh, picture of where America is, but it provided that qualitative information. And it, it provided those personal stories um, and really helped the commission to understand uh, what service means and how service is perceived around the country. And Avril, you mentioned earlier that the commission concluded there that it would be useful to have a council on military, national, and public service at the White House level. Can you tell us more about why that was necessary? Yeah, absolutely. I, so this is really, in my mind, it's for two reasons. It's one, to elevate, and two, to coordinate. And basically, um, the absence, from our perspective, of a high-level you know, sort of leader in the White House to effectively coordinate service across the board actually limited the potential contribution of service to addressing our, our challenges across these issues. So ways in which you might think about it are as follows. If you've got um, marketing and recruiting, for example, for the military, and you know that an extraordinary number of folks who apply actually are ineligible, then you could imagine a situation in which those folks who are ineligible but still want to serve actually end up being referred to another area of service, right? Like, you know, maybe you'd like to go work uh, for the Peace Corps, or maybe you'd like to serve um, in AmeriCorps, or maybe you'd like to do some public service and some other type of job, all kinds of other options that might be available to you. And so having um, essentially, you know, a, a, a comprehensive and a sort of coordinated plan across these various areas would help to promote that concept of service. You know, no matter who you are, there's a place for you and there's a way to leverage the talent that you bring to bear in this circumstance. So that's one piece of it. The other part is just, you know, as I said, elevating service, which again, honestly, um, this is one of those areas where everybody believes in service, but it is shocking how often 
it's been cut in our budget or it's not been focused on or it doesn't receive, you know, sort of the, the resources that are required or the tension or whatever it might be in order to promote the infrastructure that's necessary in order to allow people to serve in a, a significant way. And, um, and we thought this was really critical to actually seeing some of the recommendations that we've identified being enacted because many of them are the kinds of things that just take work, you know, or sort of good government kinds of things and, um, you know, won't get done unless somebody is actually pushing to see them get done in the context of so many other priorities that people have. And I don't think it's, it's uh, in any way that people don't support service. It's really just that it's very hard to make it a priority in the way that we believe it should be. I guess, well, if it's not a priority at the end of this crisis, um, then yeah. I think we will have, we will have failed to learn uh, our lesson. Um, uh, yeah, so Although, Paul, can I just say something yeah. on that? Because you're right. Uh, I totally agree with that. But it's it's interesting because I, you know, I um, I did a, a panel on bio threats just as we were entering the coronavirus um, crisis. And somebody asked, you know, you've told us it's going to get a lot worse. There's going to be all of these things that are going to happen, right? Do you think we'll learn our lesson and will we actually invest in some of the uh, long-term infrastructure that's necessary even for pandemics, right? So setting aside service more, even focused on the crisis that's at the root of what we're experiencing right now. And I have to say, I was, you know, not incredibly optimistic, largely because I think we end up spending on the particular crisis that we're faced with. And, and I understand that instinct completely, because I think you want to go out, you want to help the people that you see are in need right now. But we really do have a challenge in investing in long-term infrastructure crises that we haven't seen yet. And that's something that I think, um, you know, service is a critical aspect of it. And it's just another example of where we don't do it. But it's just to make your point, Melissa, because I, I think it says, I worry about that. Yeah, I, th I, I, I do too. And I, I think part of this is um, these things are such an abstraction for most individuals. Mm. You know, this could happen, it might yeah. happen. If you're really not, say, um, an expert in infectious disease who understands, you know, how the impact of a warming planet might suddenly launch, you know, uh, any kind of pandemic, um, maybe it's just you're just getting through the day and paying attention to your kids and, and you know, doing whatever you can and you're the voter it's not a priority and you you it's hard for you to hold your elected officials accountable to something that seems so remote from your present experience but it, i think a council could potentially make that more present and um, palpable for people um, probably through the right kind of outreach so I, I just think that particular recommendation i think makes really a lot of sense um, I'd like to switch for just a second, though, Paul, and I'd like to talk to you about um, uh, legal challenges sort of generally to mobilizing uh, a national service force. Um, and, and I will, at the end of this podcast, of course, plug uh, one of the books that the committee has published on public-private partnerships. Um, but one of the things I think that happens in this situation is they're just as a patchwork of laws and then below that quilt are different layers and layers of disconnected things. Talk about um, those challenges in the context of the current crisis, perhaps. Right. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of, I think you've got it exactly right. There is a patchwork of laws out there. And if we're looking 
Um, specifically at service, uh, you have a lot of things that are actually regulated um, at the state level, and it makes it uh, potentially challenging to mobilize individuals from one part of the country, say, to go into another part of the country. Uh, a real talk earlier about this service platform idea, the concept that you could, um, among many other functions, you could have a one-stop shop for people to come and identify their interests and their skills um, and their willingness to go somewhere if there's an emergency and to, to serve a certain role. Um, and this is something theoretically that, um, and, and maybe uh, maybe even practically, that states could tap into in order to draw on individuals across the country to go where they need, um, where they're needed whenever there's a crisis. It could be a public health crisis. It could be, it could be a cyber crisis. It could be anything else. Um, right now, what you see is there are a number of states out there that have volunteer mobilizer cores, um, and these tend to focus on on, on medical personnel, um, healthcare workers. Uh, Colorado has one, Tennessee has one, um, and um, they seem to be very effective at getting people who are licensed within those states. Uh, but even in these national efforts, one of the problems that you do have is that uh, licenses for things like doctors and nurses nurses continue to be regulated by state. Um, there are a couple of, of federal laws out there. One of them is called the Volunteer Protection Act. The other is called the Public Health and Emergency Preparedness Act. And these are um, pieces of legislation that help the federal government um, to be able to do things in the event of a crisis. And they also provide some protection um, from liability for individuals who, who help. So they're not exactly good Samaritan laws, but they're similar in concept, yet even under these laws, state licensure requirements uh, present a, a, a barrier um, to really getting experts where they need to go when they're needed. So, uh, you know, one of the ideas that the commission talked about was, um, at least within the scope of federal employment, ensuring that individuals who are doing work with the federal government um, and medical workers can have their licenses uh, valid while they're working within the scope of their employment, even if they move to another state. And I think that's important. I think it could go a lot further. Um, I think this is something that is a, a real nationwide challenge and, um, and and one where there may be value in having a model code, having a uniform law commission or some other body come up with a way to um, ensure that that we can respond much better to emergencies and get the experts where they need to go. So I think, you know, to, to that point, Paul, I mean, one of these, these laws just don't work together in a national crisis. I think people looking at, for example, the opioid crisis realized that they were similarly challenged. Um, you know, pharmacists um, filling these things were under different state um, right. laws. There's really no sort of overarching approach to things. Um, and I guess I just wonder, um, how would you, how would we bring a, a sort of unified legal approach? I think you mentioned a model code. Um, do you want to discuss a little bit more what some of that could look like? Sure. I think, um, you know, if you're taking the example of state license licensing requirements, I think that um, there is potential benefits, and this is not something the commission looked at, so let me just be clear about that. And, in having states um, allow for reciprocity in the event of certain types of emergencies where they really don't have the supply, they don't have the 
um, uh, the expertise that they need, and they really need to go across state lines to bring that in. Um, I think there can be benefit there, but um, expanding it much more broadly, I mean, I, I think you really hit on an issue with a patchwork of laws, and it's, um, you know, some of these do relate to the ability of people to, um, to perform service uh, in other places. And um, some of them relate more to um, uh, to products and taxes and other sorts of things. But um, I think it would be a worthwhile uh, uh, to, to do a close detailed look at this. And, and, you know, that may even be a function that this uh, council that Avril talked about uh, could undertake. Thanks, Paul. Avril, how do you think that this current ongoing crisis might inform the way that the commission's report is received? Well, I'm... Honestly, hoping that it is uh, seen as a kind of a call to action, frankly, in relation to the committee, you know, into the commission's recommendations. I, I think if you think about it through the lens of um, so many of the sort of service opportunities that we discussed that could have been relevant for this kind of crisis, the idea that if we had a significantly greater number of folks who were actually serving in the United States and capable of mobilizing in the context of a crisis, what that could do for us, a place like this. I think there's about 24 million that um, currently participate in service, but for a country with you know roughly 330 million people, we have an opportunity to really see a very different kind of service to meet the critical needs that we face um, across the country. But another space that I think, um, you know, that is maybe underexplored uh, when people think about this crisis and the degree to which it would intersect with service is the way in which we've sort of made recommendations about um, it, recruiting and maintaining uh, talent in the workforce, including in places where you have skilled professionals that are needed, such as in the context of healthcare. And um, and I maybe just take this opportunity to talk a little bit about those issues, if that's all right with you. Is that okay? Oh, yes. I think, so for me, public service, for example, is a place that we spent really an enormous amount of time. And these are, are frequently the civilians that are essentially, you know, do, playing a critical role in defending the homeland, in ensuring public safety, in responding to disasters, including the current one, right? Um, preventing and curing diseases, doing so much more across our, our infrastructure. And that's not just at the federal level, obviously, but also at the state and tribal and local level. And I think one of the things that we really wanted to do or really a series of things that we wanted to do in the space is effectively recognize the value of public service and the importance of it to fix what are, are just extraordinarily archaic um, uh, systems, rules and rigid practices and so on that make it very challenging to hire and to keep the best talent to bring in a new generation effectively of folks who could be in the government and I can give you a sense of, of just, I think, how important that is as we see a whole series in, of retirements that we're going to be facing in the coming years. And, um, and then finally, to create you know, and shift to a more flexible, modern talent management system that can help us to recruit and retain the talent that we need in many of these spaces. And so we've got a, a number of recommendations that get to these issues. Um, and, you know, there's things like 
fixing uh, USA Jobs, which if any of you um, have experienced, and I suspect <laughs> all of you may have at some point or another, you may know how important it is to overhaul that system. Um, providing more accessible job descriptions, I mean, conducting more proactive recruiting, revamping processes to determine whether candidates are qualified, increasing flexibility for agencies to select the most qualified candidates, creating um, more flexible benefits so that, frankly, you know, that recognize the fact that people don't want to stay in their jobs for the rest of their life anymore, that that's a, a change that we're seeing in the way um, our workforces are working. So, you know, and then bringing in this next generation of talent, doing things like making it easier to do internships and other things from recent graduates and doing that kind of recruiting. And, you know, and just to give you a sense of, of how important that is um, in many respects, I'll just say, you know, more than a third of the federal workforce will be eligible to retire in the next five years. And that is a pretty remarkable wow. statistic, right? Yeah. And just 6% of the federal workforce is under age 30 right now. And from 2010 to 2018, new hires of student interns fell by about 90%, right? So we really are seeing a challenge here. And um, and so that's the kind of thing that you can imagine doing in the context of public service. And there's no question that would help with some of the COVID-19 pieces, right? They're sort of, you know, maintaining that kind of level of talent and recruitment in the context of public service would be there to support, um, uh, you know, a health crisis like this one. And so would, you know, the call for volunteers, the national um, uh, roster of Americans, the access that you could get through the service platform, the establishment of these sort of critical skills, individual ready reserves, and so on that can bring in these things, the increase of, of sort of licensure um, portability that Paul was talking about for federal health care professionals. There's just a whole series of ways in which you can imagine these things, um, you know, sort of dovetailing together and, and creating um, a better platform from which to address these sorts of crises. And, you know, the, the, the issue of recruiting and maintaining talent is not just true in the public service, it's also true in the military service, and we have recommendations that get to that there too. So, I mean, I think there's a whole series of things that are part of actually promoting, in a way, this sort of broader platform from which we can actually address these kinds of crises. Wow, thank you so much. Um, so, Avril, Paul, we are going to thank you so much for joining us um, and telling us all about the Commission's super important work you will be able to find links to the Commission's report and any other tidbits we can find that we think will be useful to you. Um, I don't know if the USA Jobs uh, website is useful to anybody, but we will link to it there as well if you want to get a jump start on uh, your career in service. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, both of you. Um, for, for those of you who are listening, who are young, maybe your last semester of law school is being uh, you're participating virtually or at least in one instance i know they simply canceled the semester um, we're going to link the bios of both paul and avril and you, you should take a look at that especially when it comes to avril because she really is a renaissance woman she's done a little of everything uh, whether your arc professionally is straight up sideways um, or you do all kinds of detours um, just have heart through this crisis uh, that your legal career is, is probably not stuck anywhere. Um, so uh, I don't know, Avril, if you have any encouraging words for our young listeners who 
really are facing a, a quite a stressful situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I um, all I can tell you is is some of the challenges that I've been trying to manage in these circumstances, and and to say uh, how inspired I've been, frankly, by the students that um, that I have the great opportunity to work with at Columbia in, in their own approach to this. But I've been trying to set a schedule for myself, you know, every day, so that I actually don't kind of lose track of uh, you know work and recreation and so on, and doing some exercise because I find that. Sitting next to the fridge all day long and working is not working out so well for me. I don't know how I just feel about that, but um, I've managed to to set up some uh, virtual coffees. We'll see how these go, because <laughs> I like to get coffee with my friends. So we've decided we're going to try this by Zoom as a way to to relieve some of the stress. And honestly, um, just being grateful for the fact that. Um, you know, I have so many more resources, I think, than than many people have, both in terms of, of just family and friends and, uh, you know, the economics to be able to manage for this period in a lockdown scenario. And I'm, um, you know, I just, I see every day how challenging it is for many people around me and not just with childcare and parent care, but also on the potential of losing their jobs and certainly reducing their revenue and so on. And it's... Um, it's daunting, I think, and it's a time when we all need to pull together to help each other in our communities and really uh, do what I know Americans are great at doing, which is working with each other to, to sort of um, pull all of us along. So I, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to see that happening in my own community in different ways, but I'm also just grateful for, um, yeah, sort of the, the, what I've been given in a sense. Well, uh, I am on my way to a virtual happy hour uh, in just a few nice. minutes myself. <laughs> yes, me, so. me too. I organized a from your porch happy hour this evening for the neighborhood. It's all oh, looking at each other and toast. It, You're the one that should be giving great advice on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's all C CDC guidance friendly. So um, yeah. we <laughs> so we will um, we'll definitely uh, look forward to connecting to everybody over webcams and the telephone and snail mail even um but do not t touch anybody do not cough on anybody please please follow the guidelines um we will be back next week with more content for you uh and we will do everything we can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast moving legal developments so you don't have to go too far beyond your laptop screen remember to hit the subscribe button on your app of choice Drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Find us and follow us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. Give us your thoughts because we welcome your feedback. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll continue to bring you content next week. Thanks so much to Avril and Paul. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'll see you next week. Unless you thought you could get off without a legal disclaimer, the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.